The folks at Rad Power Bikes have a lot in common with what we do here at The War on Cars. Just like us, they believe in a world where it's easier for more people to live life without ever having to own or drive a car. CEO Mike Radenbaugh talks about it all the time. He wants Rad Power to be the e-bike for people who are waking up to the fact that they don't need a car for every little trip. As North America's leading electric bike brand, Rad Power Bikes has affordable e-bikes for every kind of rider, whether you're commuting to work, running errands, or just getting some exercise. Rad Power Bikes are built for anything, and they're priced for everyone. And take it from me, or from anyone who's ever ridden one, they are a ton of fun. Visit radpowerbikes.com to find the right e-bike for you, or for someone in your life who wants to spend less time in a car. There are plenty of bikes in stock, and shipping is free. Again, that's radpowerbikes.com, transforming the way we move and helping to win the war on cars. Hello, I'm Sarah Goodyear, and this is The War on Cars, the podcast where we want to live. Those voices you heard belong to young climate activists from a group called the Sunrise Movement. In early November, they confronted West Virginia Senator Joe Manchin in Washington, D.C., over his refusal to support President Biden's infrastructure bill because of climate change provisions. Young people want to live. It seems kind of basic, right? Anyone over the age of 35 or so probably grew up thinking that the desire to live was something to take for granted, at least on a societal scale. But many younger people, like the ones trying to be heard by Joe Manchin, don't take anything for granted. Many members of Gen Z worry that the places they live today will soon be uninhabitable, that they won't be able to raise their children, or realize their dreams the way that previous generations have, that their very survival is at stake. In a bit, we'll be talking with Dr. Elizabeth Marks, a clinical psychologist and one of the co-authors of a new study about climate anxiety in young people all over the world. Dr. Marks and her colleagues surveyed 10,000 people aged 16 to 25 from 10 different countries, from Nigeria to the Philippines, to Portugal, to the U.S. 60% said that they are either very worried or extremely worried about climate change, and 45% said that those fears affected their day-to-day lives. A remarkable two-thirds said that they feel government is failing them in the fight to halt the worst effects of climate change. We'll find out more about that research later. But first, let's hear directly from young people who are taking action themselves. I recently had a chance to talk with some teenagers about their climate concerns just a few blocks from where I live in Brooklyn. Well, I definitely think that I have a lot of anxiety about the climate crisis. I think it's really hard when you wake up every morning and you hear the news and all these adults are like saying that there are all these like catastrophic issues in the world, but then nobody really seems to want to fix them. And you see legislation that just doesn't really reflect what you hear about. 
And I think that it's really like scary because we're all being pressured into like speaking about this, but at the same time, we don't really have the wherewithal to do anything. And then it feels like it's just gonna be too late when we finally do get to an age where we can make a difference. That was Amelia, a 15-year-old student at Brooklyn Technical High School. She was one of the scores of students, mostly from New York City public high schools, rallying on the steps of Brooklyn Borough Hall in support of a pretty radical proposal to improve New York bike infrastructure. It's called The Tube, and it was first proposed by Pulitzer Prize-winning reporter Lori Garrett. The Tube would take abandoned tunnels and railways around New York and connect them, creating a protected bike highway system that would allow people to ride bikes safely all over New York City. It's an incredibly ambitious proposal. But as far as these kids are concerned, it's the kind of dramatic change that's absolutely necessary to combat climate change and give them a chance at a decent future. I mean, it's clear that we need other options besides cars. This is Oscar, who goes to Stuyvesant High School. He was one of the event organizers. Because cars, they're killing our earth. Like, it, it is not sustainable. Like, we can't keep doing this. And people are so averse to change that they want to just blind themselves to the issue rather than, like, facing the issue head on and making some real change that could possibly save our world. I mean, sometimes I worry whether my, I will have to move from this coastline city before my kids get to grow up here. Like, I don't know what is in the next 50 years for this city. And I, I don't know what's in the next 50 years for the world. I mean, maybe our, hundred, our summers will be 130 degrees. Like, I, I think we have to make real change and have the deadlines that everyone's here, heard are in like two years. Like, those are coming up much quicker than you would expect. And we need to make real change before we get there. Young people around the world are worried about the future, and they're not accepting the usual empty platitudes from politicians. They want change now, not years down the road. That's because for them, climate change is not an abstraction or a theory. Here's what Melissa had to say about that. She's 15 and also goes to Brooklyn Tech. I think it's obvious to have anxiety about this climate crisis. As a teen, it's so confusing now because I'm not sure whether to focus on my future or whether to focus on whether there will be a future and you get this like small thought in the back of your head that all these like business executives who make the big decisions who make how much plastic they produce the ones who are deciding about the fossil fuels and oil being like dug you're saying like do they even care like do they even care that there's so many people here or do they only care about the money that's coming into their pockets because at the end of the day it's they all they could be doing is like looking down from their huge like skyscrapers and just laughing it off and then hitting another button to get another, you know, machine in to drill up oil. So it's really just confusing and it almost makes you seem like you really don't have any power here, especially as a teen, when you're the one whose future is at stake. And the inaction of society's so-called leaders, the proverbial adults in the room, who will all be dead when the worst effects of climate change kick in, is causing young people a lot of stress. Here's Adam, another one of the tube organizers who is a senior at Brooklyn Tech. I would definitely say angry is one of the words I would use to describe, but I'm, I'm disappointed and I'm, honestly I'm scared because the you know, self-interest of so many of the adults that have brought us to the situation we are in today who uh, create policy that's not friendly to bikers out of, you know, special interests 
who are lobbying just because they can fill their own pockets. It's not going to matter that they fill their own pockets in 50 years when all our city is underwater. And I think that their short-sightedness, yes, as you said, it makes me angry. But in general, I just, I don't know where we're going to be if these are the people in power right now. I'm scared more than anything. In a minute, we'll hear my discussion with Dr. Elizabeth Marks about her groundbreaking research on youth climate anxiety. We talked about the injury our leaders have done to the trust between generations by failing to deal with the crisis. We also talked about what all of us can do to repair the damage. But first, a quick break. Hey, it's Aaron here. And one of the great things about having our own little independently run podcast is that we get to pick and choose our sponsors. We don't have to try to sell you a monthly underwear subscription or a mattress delivery service. We only pitch products that we really like, like Cleverhood. I have been wearing a Cleverhood Classic Electric Glen Rain Cape for longer than we have been doing this podcast, almost 10 years now. I wear my Cleverhood when I'm walking my dog. I wear it when I'm riding my bike. If it's raining and I'm outside, I'm wearing my Cleverhood. It is the best and most versatile piece of everyday rain gear I've ever owned. And the folks who run Cleverhood are good people. They support environmentally friendly manufacturing, fair labor practices, and small suppliers. They donate 5% of revenue to advocacy groups working to create safer, more livable, and equitable streets. Now through December 31st, listeners of The War on Cars can receive 20% off on everything in the Cleverhood store. Go to cleverhood.com slash waroncars and enter coupon code HOLIDAYRAIN. Again, that's cleverhood.com slash waroncars, coupon code HOLIDAYRAIN. Now let's get to my interview with Dr. Elizabeth Marks. First of all, Dr. Elizabeth Marks, welcome to The War on Cars. I'd love it if you could just introduce yourself and tell us where you are and and what it is that you do. Hi, thanks so much for having me. So I'm a clinical psychologist and a senior lecturer in psychology. I'm based at the University of Bath in the UK. I am really interested in researching and understanding eco-anxiety and climate anxiety and the psychological burdens of climate change. You've come out or you're about to put out a paper about climate anxiety among young people that has gotten uh, quite a bit of attention, I think, in the press, as in so many cases, I think that we're more able to allow ourselves to feel things if we think about them in terms of younger people or children, that sometimes we allow ourselves to understand things in a different way when we look at those effects, as opposed to thinking of the effects on ourselves. Maybe you could talk a bit about how you decided to do this research and how you structured the study. Well, it's was a a group effort, that's for sure. I was lucky enough to be invited to um, join an international group of researchers and clinicians who are all really engaged with this subject of eco-anxiety. And we had some funding to conduct a really large-scale study, which is what this area really needed. There have been quite a lot of studies published in the last decade or so, some qualitative and quantitative research but not a study that was able to really explore at scale how children and young people are feeling about climate change, particularly in a wide range of countries around the world. So we got together and based on our knowledge of the literature and the area, we thought about the types of experiences that were commonly reported by children and young people, both in terms of how they feel about climate change 
um, and how they think about it, and also how it is affected by what governments are doing or more likely not doing enough of in order to combat climate change. And because it was a very large scale study, we were quite restricted in terms of the number of questions we could ask and how we could ask them. So we had to use a survey methodology where we gave people a number of statements and um, types of emotions that we knew were common in the research and asked this representative sample of 10,000 people whether or not they uh, were experiencing these things. So how many questions did you ask? Eight main questions, and they were broken down into uh, sub-questions. So we would ask whether or not climate change would make people feel a certain way, and then we'd list a a number of emotions. We'd ask whether or not climate change made, made people think a certain way, and then list a number of common thoughts. Which countries did you survey, and how did you choose those? What we really wanted to do was to get a number of countries that reflected a range of incomes, cultures, climates, climate vulnerabilities, exposure to extreme weather events from the global north and the global south. So we surveyed young people in Australia, Brazil, India, Finland, France, Nigeria, Philippines, Portugal, the UK and the USA. So what overall were your findings? Maybe you could just describe, you know, as you looked at this data, what started to jump out at you immediately? Over 80% of these 10,000 people told us they were worried about climate change, which is a huge proportion. And I think what's really important to recognise is that the methodology that we used and the survey company that we used wasn't recruiting people who were worried about climate change or engaged in climate activism. This is just normal people going about their daily lives who answer online polls. And um, 80% of them told us that they're worried. Over half of them were telling us that they had many other emotions as well as worry and anxiety. Over half were feeling sad, angry, powerless, helpless and guilty. A large proportion were feeling depressed and shame. So there was a real sense that there's a lot of distressing emotions happening when people think about climate change. But despite that, when people have tried to talk about climate change, half of the sample told us that they had been ignored or dismissed by others. And um, I think that is a really important aspect of what this study has found. And it's really important for us to try and break that collective silence and help people talk about how they're feeling about climate change. Yeah, I find that really interesting because even among people I know who are aware of climate change, have been aware, consider themselves liberal, vote for politicians who support action on climate change and and all of that, even those people are very reluctant to talk about it. My theorizing about it, my armchair theorizing, is that it's, it's such a profound and distressing situation that we're in that the appropriate response to it is quite deep and quite, quite upsetting, and so that people are scared of, of going there. I, I wonder if you've found that in your research or what you think some of the reason that there's so much rejection of conversation that you found. Well, that was out of the scope of this particular study, but I think there's, there's been quite a lot of discussion about this in, in the clinical field and in academic fields as well, around that, that often people kind of uh, slip between 
denial of the feeling, not not able to contact the reality of climate change because it's very overwhelming and despair when they are in contact with climate change and the awareness of it, it becomes too much. And actually um, what we need to try and do as an in, as an individual, but more as a society, is to find that place in between, which is like, yes, this reality is very disturbing. It's very scary, but I'm not on my own. And actually, there are things that we can do. And the IPCC report has laid out, you know, things that we can do in order to achieve a much more hopeful future, provided we act now. And in order to do that action, we do need to engage with the reality. So there's a sense in which facing some of these emotions and allowing them into our awareness is an essential part of being a responsible citizen in a way. But it can be too much to do that on your own. So a society that won't allow you to talk about that means that you are feel much more alone. Um, and therefore, it's much more difficult to engage with this reality and these emotions. Whereas if we can open up conversations like you're doing today, I think people feel a little bit more able to do that. And indeed, since we've launched this preprint, it'll be published in the Lancet Planetary Health next month, which is great. People have been contacting us to say, thank you, particularly young people. I now know I'm not alone. I don't feel so alone. And that in itself is extremely helpful. 75% told us they think the future is frightening. Four out of 10 are hesitant to have children because of climate change. Over half think humanity is doomed. So these, these are really intense thoughts about the future. And what I think... A society that doesn't allow people to talk about this is doing is it's creating a situation where people feel as though their concerns um, and their experiences aren't valid, and one of that that is a kind of that's a form of interpersonal betrayal. And what our study looked at was what does this betrayal look like on a bigger scale? So. What do young people think about governments and what governments are doing in terms of climate change? And they told us that they think governments are not doing enough. The majority of young people think that governments are failing them, that they can't be trusted. And as a result, they, they're telling us that they feel betrayed. They feel abandoned, belittled. So that is part of this, this general story in the world that we can't talk about climate change, where really we have to. Do you find that the responses from this age group differ significantly from older age groups? Have you done similar research with older groups? Um, I haven't personally done research on this scale with older age groups, but um, there have been quite a number of studies uh, coming out recently in slightly older generations. And the findings point towards similar experiences. But I think because this field is quite new and moving very, very quickly, there's quite a lot more research to do. But I think there are plenty of people over 25 who are feeling very anxious and worried about climate change and feel as though their governments and those in positions of power are failing them. One of the things that really drew me to your research was that you are attempting to address the question or the concept of moral injury. You know, I have so many friends who are nice people, care about climate change, who drive around in SUVs and who say, well, this is just the price of society. This is what it means to live in a modern society. And I don't see a way out of that. 
And I think that, that underneath, people are feeling distressed by that because they know on some level when they turn the key in their SUV that that is a destructive action. And yet they're saying, I have to perform this action in order to participate in society. And that's just, I think that there's a huge cognitive dissonance there that is manifesting in mental distress. So maybe you could talk about the concept of moral injury as it relates to your research and this study in particular. I mean, I think a person who's written about these kind of ideas far more eloquently than than I can speak about them is Sally Weintrobe, who's written a book called The Psychological Roots of the Climate Crisis, which draws together some of those ideas really beautifully. And and I think there's there's a, a a real a real importance here for us to have empathy and compassion for each other, living in a system that is really conflicting in in terms of the the ways in which modern life runs and how it's so integrated with consumerism and with the use of fossil fuels and to kind of recognize that as individuals we can make differences we can change our actions but it is urgent large-scale government action that we need now and that that is that's really where we need to see the change in terms of moral injury i'm most familiar in the concept from my own work and research in the work that was done with with veterans and was recently actually applied to healthcare professionals working in COVID. And so my understanding of it is that moral injury is what happens, it's a moral distress, is when someone witnesses or perpetrates um, something that violates a moral belief or a core belief, or if they see somebody acting or failing to act to prevent harm. So our research group at the moment is sort of posing this as a possibility. So research into this in terms of answering that question, can climate change and government inaction equate to a moral injury, is something that we are investigating more. But the argument is that because governments are failing to act on climate change and society is, is as a result, also failing to act on climate change, it's leading to the destruction of human life and the more than human life. And in failing to act to prevent that from happening or mitigate it, governments are failing in their ethical responsibility to care and to prevent harm from happening to their citizens and also to future generations. So it would be reasonable and logical to assume that if people are witnessing that, they will experience distress. And for some, that might equate to a moral injury. And I think, you know, we're talking the week after COP, um, the sort of the lack of ambition at COP26 is an example of that betrayal. And I've spoken to young people, I've read about young people who actively have experienced COP26 as a betrayal and their eco-anxiety has spiked massively as a result. They feel like the voices of those most at risk are being ignored. There's a lot of greenwashing. There's a lot of confusing messaging about what's really happening. And ultimately, it's hailed as a success by by our leaders. And there are, you know, there is a step forward happening here. But the report that was published last Tuesday suggests that the world's heading for 2.4 degrees of warming when the IPCC report really clearly states we need 1.5 degrees. So there is, you know, we are all witnessing people failing to act to prevent harm. I'm the mother of a 19-year-old. And what I see with him and his peers is a little bit paradoxical. Yes, they're, they're worried, but they're young people who want to live. 
many of them do want to have children, or at least they want to have that choice. They want to feel like that's a choice, right? In your research, have you also sensed not just the grief and the anxiety and the, and the anger and betrayal, but also sort of the life force of young people? This is their life. This is the only life they're going to get. Uh, absolutely. And, you know, that is the thing that keeps me actively hopeful, by which I mean, you know, working with them to find this way through. I think there are an incredible number of very inspiring young people that I've been privileged to work with and get to know who are doing exactly what you say. And I think it is really important to, as a sort of saying, taking this stance of recognising the really difficult reality we're living in and also recognizing that if we act and if we allow these people who have this energy and this inspiration this motivation to act and create spaces for them where they can influence what happens then we're looking at a you know we are looking at a hopeful future and I'm currently running a small-scale project looking at stories of hope so getting young people to think about and tell us about what their hopes are for the future, realistic hope and ways in which they want to get there. And I would say, you know, that the large scale study that um, we were talking about a moment ago, there were people there that were telling us they can feel reassured by government action. They can feel protected and they can feel as though governments are doing enough. So, Just to think about the idea of moral injury, the flip side of moral injury is moral repair. And it is possible to repair betrayal if you apologise and you acknowledge that you've made a mistake. If you come up with a action plan to make the changes that are needed and you are accountable to that, this experience of betrayal can be changed. And that is really what we need to be seeing. Yeah, there's a quotation by the American writer James Baldwin that gained a lot of currency during the Black Lives Matter movement last year. Not everything that is faced can be changed, but nothing can be changed until it is faced. And it almost risks becoming a cliche, but but I think that that's really true. And, and as you were saying earlier, that until we face the distress that we feel, the emotions that this is causing, and we acknowledge that those emotions are being caused by something real and that they're valid, until we do that, we're not going to be able to act effectively on on the scale that's needed. Absolutely. And we have emotions. We've evolved to have emotions because they tell us really important things about the life that we're living. We, We feel fear and anxiety when there's a threat. We feel grief when there's a loss. We feel anger when there's an injustice. So people are feeling these complex emotions. Eco-anxiety isn't just anxiety. It's all of these emotions because the world that we're living in is presenting us with all of these challenges. So these emotions are really important things to help motivate us to act in a way to protect ourselves and um, the things that we care about from harm. And that word care, which is is so essential, I think, is central to those emotions because we feel emotions when the things that we care about are threatened. So we fear losing things that we care about. We grieve the loss of things that we care about. So this eco-anxiety 
is not something that needs to be gotten rid of or cured or fixed. It's something that needs to be honoured and respected and recognised as something that indicates like one of the most beautiful things of humanity, which is our ability to care for others and for the world around us and for ourselves. I think that's a perfect note to end on. I really appreciate your taking the time and I just agree with you so much. Oh, thank you, Sarah. It's been such a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you for your interest as well. That's it for this episode of The War on Cars. We'll have links to Dr. Elizabeth Marks' work in the show notes. We will also link to the Tube Bike Network proposal, which we're definitely keeping an eye on. Remember, if you want to support The War on Cars, Go to thewaroncars.org, click support us, and join today. Starting at just $2 a month, we'll send you stickers and other special items, and you'll get access to exclusive bonus content. As always, we'd like to thank our top Patreon supporters, Charlie G. of Human Powered Law in Portland, Oregon, the Law Office of Vaccaro and White in New York City, Drew Raines, Virginia Baker, and James Doyle. Special thanks also to our sponsors, Rad Power Bikes and Cleverhood. For 20% off on the best rain gear for bicycling and walking, go to cleverhood.com slash waroncars. Enter coupon code HOLIDAYRAIN at checkout. That's HOLIDAYRAIN. The sale runs through the end of the year, all you late gift givers. And don't forget to visit our official store. You'll find our new... Cars Ruin Cities t-shirt there and stickers and lots more. This episode was produced by me and edited by Susie Armitage. Our music is by Nathaniel Goodyear. Our logo is by Danny Finkel of Crucial D Designs. On behalf of my co-hosts Doug Gordon and Aaron Napperstack, I'm Sarah Goodyear and this is The War on Cars. (laughs) 